Hello, and welcome to Orwellian, the podcast dedicated to the essays of George Orwell. When you hear the word Orwellian, what do you think of? Terrifying dystopias? State surveillance? The loss of personal freedom? Well, we think of tea, pubs, and the common toad. Join us, and we'll tell you why. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. My name is Lewis, and I'm here with my co-host... Simon. And today... We're discussing the George Orwell essay, Can Socialists Be Happy? But before we get on to that, Simon, how have you been? I've been very well. Yourself? Not bad, thank you. I'm on holiday now, which is nice. We're very lucky, you and I, uh, working in education. It means we get these long holidays, and it gives us the chance, I think, to do things that are important to us and find happiness, which is one of the themes of this essay. But I'm unfortunately not finding happiness in the manners that he discusses in this essay. <laughs> this is my relief, recording the podcast. My relief too. So we're talking about uh, an essay Simon chose, Can Socialists Be Happy? And No. Right, so I'll see you next week. So, Can Socialists Be Happy? This was uh, published in the Tribune on the 24th of December, 1943. And an interesting thing about this essay, under which name is it published? Oh, I don't know. Under which name was it published? This essay was published under the name John Freeman. Really? And it's the last Orwell essay to have been published in the public because they needed to confirm it was indeed by him. Now, they found out it definitely was by him because when they looked at the accounts of, of, which, of when the Tribune paid him, one of the accounts matched the date of publication of this essay. And a lot of references in the essay are made in other Orwell essays. And quite frankly, as one researcher said, it's just clearly bloody Orwell. What would you say are some of the hallmarks that show that it's Orwell? The themes, the wonderful language he uses at times. Some of the um, similes, some of the humour, yes. very Orwellian. And also the preoccupation with literature, especially Dickens and... Uh, exactly, hence the references. And, and he, there's even some quotes from this essay which are directly from other essays, especially his ones on Swift and Dickens. The, the question is, why did he publish this under the name John Freeman? And there's been some debate, but people have consensus that it allowed him to be paid a special fee. He was paid a bit more for this essay than he was for others. But the details behind why are, are unclear. Also, some people claim that Orwell just simply wish to see how far the Tribune would let people go with their opinions without him being pinned for it. Well, yes, and I'm not surprised because there is a bit later on in the essay where he says, right, I'm now going to make a statement that the editors of the Tribune will probably not agree with. Yeah, and indeed they didn't. Now, the problem was... Ten years after the publication of this, the new editor of the Tribune, by mere coincidence, was called John Freeman. And within the first week of his taking of tenure as editor of the Tribune, had to come out and publicly say, I'm not that John Freeman. 
And in private, he apparently told people, oh, that John Freeman was bloody Blair. So, again, more evidence as to the fact. And I think now the scholarship is so convinced this is all well that it's been published in books such as the one we are using today. Now, something which is going to be a bit different today is I'm going to take the lead on this because you felt more confident in me doing so. Yes. We'll let the listeners be the judge of that. <laughs> so the essay starts with a familiar theme of Orwell discussing Christmas. Yes, when you told me we were going to discuss this essay, I was excited because I'd never actually read it before. And then I started it and I thought, oh, Simon and I are repeating ourselves a bit here because we talked about Christmas, Orwell and Christmas, not so very long ago. But he doesn't really dwell on Christmas for very long, does he? He mentions it again at the end to kind of sort of bring things full circle. But it's not really about Christmas, is it? He's just using it as an opening to his argument because, as we know from a previous podcast, from previous essays, Orwell agrees with Christmas. He's not cynical towards it like many are because it is momentary relief from the realities and hardships of life, especially back here in the 40s during wartime. And as we'll get on to later, uh, it's very much about this idea of contrast, happiness through contrast. Exactly. And also, it's momentary. It's just one day. I love it when he says, and this is how you know this is all well, he says, the wolf is at the door, the wolf being poverty and hardship, but is wagging his tail. <laughs> If you don't believe this essay's by Orwell, surely that settles it. <laughs> it's brilliantly put. So that's basically a the theme of this essay, where happiness as we know it as humankind is basically leaving the wolf at the door but wagging its tail. Mm. I saw um, the two main themes of this essay being utopia yes, and... Utopianism, rather, and happiness, and how happiness, in Orwell's view, is not the absence of inconvenience, if yeah. that makes sense. Um, I think we should maybe start... Sorry, there's me uh, taking over. No, no, but, um, we, we should probably start with Orwell's thoughts on utopianism. And I hadn't... I was only thinking this on the train on the way to see you when I was reading the essay for a third time. It's very interesting to have this very famous dystopian writer's views on utopianism, Utopia. isn't it? Well, he does caveat that with giving us the true meaning of the word utopia. Due to Thomas More's book, we all associate utopia with a land of eternal joy, blissfulness and happiness. Yet the real meaning is a place that doesn't exist, or as Orwell writes, a non-existent place. Yeah, if you, if you break the word down to its Greek roots, this is the true meaning of it. So there's the dystopian for you and Orwell coming out there by dispelling a myth as to what utopia actually means. But uh, he is telling the truth. I think this is another hallmark that shows you this was written by George Orwell, because Orwell loved to uh, debunk the received wisdom of various uh, sorts. In other essays, he, 
he looks at you know old wives tales like uh, bulls hate the color red or uh, if you cut yourself between your thumb and your forefinger you'll get lockjaw he he asked in uh, an essay not so long before this one was published he asked for the readers of the tribune to send in these examples of old wives tales that had this kind of scientific ring to them but were actually untrue so i think it's very much part of uh, orwell as a writer that he is debunking this idea that utopia is a perfect place and he's pointing out the truth which is it's it means a non-existent place and he completely stained my imaginary myth of working in a bookshop being bliss yes <laughs> I, I will now never ever apply to work in a bookshop having become an orwell orwellian essay fanatic what did you think of his take on utopias that ultimately I think it's fair to sum, sum it up by saying that every literary representation of utopia, from H.G. Wells to Aldous Huxley to William Morris, Orwell thinks, well, there are places in which life is easy, but that doesn't mean there are places in which people are happy. Yeah. If we break that on that further into the authors you've just mentioned there, the H.G. Wells version of Utopia, and which books was it in that he mentioned his idea of Utopia, Wells? Well, um, I'm not very well. I'm not very <laughs> Wells read in H.G. Wells, but um, uh, Orwell mentions two particular books, uh, which I think people really don't read these days yeah. much: uh, The Dream and Men Like Gods, um, as well as. Uh, One's called Anticipations and a Modern Utopia. Well, in the Wellesian literary canon, hedonism is, well, excessive hedonism and scientific curiosity are the basis of utopia. As Orwell puts it. Yeah, and it's and, very and similar. to permanent happiness. Very similar in Huxley's Brave New World, because I believe a lot of Brave New World is about. Uh, you know, sexual freedom and also, you know, people taking a lot of drugs to alter their mood. And, and with regards to hedonism, he also mentions various kings and their cohorts and how they coexisted in the past, which was an existence of hunting, making love, drinking. drinking. And Orwell writes... Sounds pretty bloody good to me. Well, Orwell writes this very interesting, and again, very Orwellian sentence. So, at the beginning of... This is quoting Orwell, page 507. At the beginning of La Pucelle, Voltaire describes the life of Charles IX with his mistress, Agnes Sorrel. They were always happy, he says. And what did their happiness consist in? Apparently in an endless round of feasting, drinking, hunting, and lovemaking. Now this is a very Orwellian line. Who would not sicken of such an existence after a few weeks? So Simon, you've just said it sounds good to you. Do you disagree with Orwell? Do you disagree? No, I, I, I was being facetious. I do agree with Orwell. I know it sounds a ridiculous thing to say, but because none of us live that lifestyle, well, almost none of us live that lifestyle, it seems utopian in its in its in its in those various forms, but in reality, you would get sick of it. It would be very shallow and superficial very quickly, wouldn't it? Well, and when it becomes the norm, 
it's no longer utopian because it's the norm. If you look at history, if kings were always happy, why were they always making war? And why was there always intrigue at court? It's because people were bored and they had this sense of emptiness in their lives. Why did Nero burn Rome? We have empirical proof that a life of excessive hedonism doesn't work. Now, what about living a life of scientific curiosity? That could be highly interesting, but is it utopia? Well, I hope you don't mind, but just at random, I had a look at the essay that was published in the Tribune on the same day, presumably under Orwell's name, 24th of December 1943. So this was published, it was one of the As I Please essays, As I Please For, and it's a bit cheeky of Orwell, you know, publishing one essay under his own name, one, one essay under another name, and basically, the money. <laughs> basically exploring the same themes, because here is a quote, any thinking socialist will concede to the Catholic that when economic injustice has been righted, the fundamental problem of man's place in the universe will still remain. So as you've said there, um, even scientific rationalism, in the view of George Orwell, who was an atheist, who was a rationalist himself, even scientific rationalism, uh, if it is used to rule society, will not lead to the complete contentment and happiness. There, there, there is Orwell basically saying that there is a kind of almost spiritual dimension to human life that cannot be satisfied by the ideas of people like H.G. Uh, Wells. Well, scientific rationalism won't solve the ever-ending human problem, and that is fear of death. Hence superstition and religion. We all know we're going to die, and it terrifies us. And there's no comfort in scientific rationalism with regards to that question that pervades for our entire lifetimes. I don't want to be... I don't want to get too heavy, and I don't want to get too personal, so but... Put that beer down. Then. But... Does the thought of death terrify you, Simon? Because actually, I am quite, I'm quite calm about the idea of my own death. I'm not afraid of it. Yeah, I am afraid of it. Um, particularly because I don't feel as though I've done enough yet to have justified my existence nor leave a mark on society. I'm not so egotistical that I believe I'm destined to leave a mark on society, but I'd like to give it a good go, and I don't feel I'm there yet. So if I was to be told you have a, a year to live, I'd feel like it was a, a life very unfulfilled, and I'm afraid of that. See, I'm not like that. I, maybe, maybe it would be different if I was suddenly faced with a, a man with a knife uh, lunging for me, but... The idea of my existence ending, the idea even of, of not being remembered or not having made a mark, it doesn't bother me at all because I am, you know, I, I think we are all ultimately dust and to the dust we return and one day the sun will explode and consume every human endeavour, every mark of human existence and it doesn't really matter that much. I don't know if that makes me a nihilist. Well, well Lewis, does existence end? Because in the essay, after the discussion on utopia, he goes on to 
briefly highlight various religions image of heaven mm. and this form of never-ending life in a kind of paradise now without me well i am going to disclude other religions for the mere fact that lewis and i were brought up in a christian environment and me in a very kind of nominal way so for you what what do you conjure in your imagination from a christian heaven well um a place of everlasting peace people being nice to each other obviously all the people who did unpleasant things like murdering and uh other crimes against people will not be there. But as Orwell says, it's quite hard to actually envisage everlasting happiness. And, and you do wonder, you know, how do you stay, uh, how do you stay entertained through uh, eternal happiness? I mean, surely whilst you're sitting on your cloud being very happy, you'll always wonder if the guy on the next cloud is a bit happier. And why is he or she happier? And what can I do to be as happy as that? And his cloud's bigger than mine. <laughs> it, it's impossible, isn't it? And that's what he says. And another thing he says is hell throughout the history of literature has always been a lot more precise and easier to imagine. This reminded me a bit of um, the old argument about satire. Um, some people say that satire is ultimately a negative thing because all that satirists do is point out what is wrong without giving any, you know, what politicians are doing is wrong, uh, what our leaders are doing is wrong, without giving any constructive comment. Satire is destructive rather than constructive. And it made me think about how it's so much easier to say, uh, you know, what you're against uh, to say, to describe eternal torment than it is to describe eternal happiness. Yeah. Because I suppose, again, the problem is we all have a very similar idea of uh, pain. We all have a very similar idea of fear and terror. But each person's idea of happiness will be different, which is, as yeah. you said, if you're in heaven and looking at the other person on the cloud, you think, are they happier than me? Well, how do we measure who is happier? Well, here's a question for you, Lewis, with regards to happiness. Is ignorance bliss? Now, after talking about Wells, he goes on to talk about Jonathan Swift and Gulliver's Travels and the uh, Hoynims. Is that correct? Hoynims. Hoynims. Um, I'll just spell this for the listener and you could... Tell me if you agree with the pronunciation. I trust Lewis on this, but I had no idea. I had to ask him. It's H-O-U-Y-H-N-H-N-M-S. So the Huinims. Huinims. So the Huinims in Gulliver's Travels, they're kind of like horse-like creatures, aren't they? They're basically um, horses that can talk and have formed their own society. Yeah. Horseplay. And he says... They live uneventful, subdued, reasonable lives, free not only from quarrels, disorder, or insecurity of any kind, but also from passion, including physical love. They choose their mates on eugenic principles, avoid excesses of affection, and appear somewhat glad to die when their time comes. Is that utopia? A, a sense of knowing your worth, 
not aiming too high nor too low and being rather ignorant to any forms of excessiveness. Is ignorance bliss? What I was thinking about this particular form of, uh, of utopia is that I think Orwell, for Orwell, humanity is key. Do you remember when we were talking at Christmas for the Christmas episode about how he was saying a bit of excess now and then is good for you, provides yeah. a mental break. You can yeah. be forgiven for outright drunkenness a few times <coughs> a year. Um, and I think this is really one of the problems that Orwell has with the Huynims, which is that these are creatures that would never get drunk because they would say, well, what's the point? You, uh, you alter your state of consciousness, but it doesn't change the world in actuality and the next morning you wake up feeling very sick there it's not logical mm. and uh, well you wouldn't want to be friends with someone who said that when you went were on a night out would you um it's a very human thing to occasionally go for excess but then knowing when to go for excess and how often to go for excess creates the dilemma in your mind which can also lead to unhappiness an excessive excess <laughs> certainly leads to unhappiness well, if you ask me, when it comes to happiness, obviously I don't have the all-seeing eye. I don't have a definitive answer to this. But what I certainly believe is that in a dichotomy of senses and emotions, one without the other is meaningless. And you'll soon be bored of it. As Orwell writes in the essay, it would seem that human beings are not able to describe, nor perhaps to imagine, Happiness, except in terms of contrast. And that's something you agree with, isn't it, with regards to contrast? Very much. And I would give the example of, um, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, you and I work in education, so mm -hmm. we're very lucky to have long holidays. And I don't know about you, but sometimes um, when I'm sitting down to relax in the middle of my long holiday, I feel a bit guilty because I think, well, I haven't been working hard today, so why should I be sitting down to read my book or do something that isn't productive in one way or another? And yet, uh, in the middle of a semester, on a Friday night, when I sit down, having had a hard week, I sit down in my armchair with a glass of beer or something distilled and uh, open my book or watch a, an interesting video on YouTube. I'm happy because of the contrast between the hard work I've been doing through the week and this moment of relaxation I have now. Well, he also, as well as contrast, uses the word relief. And his example was back in the day, in the medieval, post-medieval times, spring. Like the peasant has spent the entire winter cooped up in a smoke-filled hut. And then suddenly spring comes and they go outside into the fresh air and see the flowers blooming. Can I read this uh, medieval poem that he quotes, which yeah, I really yeah. love? Um, Do nothing but eat and make good cheer and thank heaven for the merry year. When flesh is cheap and females dear, and lusty lads roam here and there so merrily and ever among so merrily. <laughs> so what Orwell's alluding to here is that happiness is just a form of relief from harsh realities. 
And another great example that he gives, and he re re relates back to what he's been discussing with Utopia, he says, Nearly all creators of Utopia have resembled the man who has toothache and therefore thinks happiness consists in not having toothache. And it's so true, isn't it? So that's it. It's just that pure base emotion of relief from a negative emotion. Well, and that's what happiness is. I have experienced this myself because whenever I used to have a sore throat, I would think, oh, I think back to the time when I never had a sore throat, you know, a week before and think, why didn't I appreciate not having a sore throat last week? Yeah. Um, and I think we're kind of living through a moment like that as well, aren't we? Because we're... Uh, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic is still going on and many of us are looking back at the time before COVID-19 and thinking, you know, why didn't we appreciate that freedom more? Why didn't we appreciate being able to go outside without a mask on and breathe the fresh air? Why didn't we appreciate seeing people's faces in the street? I remember when I used to do my adventure bike trips and I'd be lying in my tent in minus 10 degrees, freezing on a hard surface. And I always just, I was just daydreaming of sitting in a pub with a pint, watching football, then going home, sitting on the sofa with a cup of tea and a plate of hobnob biscuits. And to me, that just seemed like utopian, blissful happiness. But I now know it was just, a pure contrast to how I was experiencing hardship at that moment in time. Now, here I am living a very happy life. I can eat hobnobs and drink beer when I want. It doesn't make me particularly happy, not in a way I thought it would have done in the times of hardship. It makes me think of what you said earlier about ignorance being bliss. Do you ever like think back to childhood and those things that gave you intense pleasure in childhood and think that a lot of the pleasure came from the fact that your life was very limited back then. You know, being able to buy your favourite sweets because your granny gave you some money was a pleasure because usually you didn't have any money. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and you weren't allowed to freely eat sweets. No, no. So when you could, it was... But I mean, from my teenage years, the things I took pleasure from have mostly gone digital now. I moved online from their paper form. <laughs> so it's very freely available and it's not such a unique possession to have anymore. Now moving on to what's in the title of this essay, the question of socialism and can it be can people or socialists be happy? It's just a paragraph at the end of the essay, really, that answers the question. Well, he leads up to it, and mostly it's an, it's a, it's an article about happiness and the ambiguity of happiness. I wonder if you would agree with me here. I think the title is a red herring. Yeah. Because I think the answer to can socialists be happy is yes, but happiness has nothing to do with socialism. Yeah. Well, he does say... I suggest that the real objective of socialism is not happiness. Which is what he thought the uh, editors of Tribune would not agree with. What does he see as being the overall objective of socialism? Well, I don't think we can do better than to quote Orwell himself. Uh, this is the nub of the essay. 
the real objective of socialism is human brotherhood. Yes. Now, let's unpack that, because that is very... It's a polemical thing to say. I believe that what Orwell means by the real objective of socialism is hu human brotherhood is that the objective of socialism is to create a society, a global society, in which people are not held back from living freely, living well, being happy. They are not held back by economics, class, race. I don't know about gender and, and sexuality, it's maybe a bit before or rather after Orwell's time, but in the modern sense I see gender and sexuality being part of that as well. Would you agree with that, Simon? I would, yeah. Well, what, 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 how do we term brotherhood in the day and age we live in? I doubt we're, it's encouraged to use the term brotherhood anymore. Would we use the word equality? I feel even the word equality is I think somewhat... that sums up brotherhood, though, doesn't it? It's a consequence of brotherhood, but it's not. Mutual respect. Respect for people's personhood, regardless of their origins. Does respect signify support? That's a very good and point. And safety. How yeah. would you how would you express it in a modern Well, sense? first of all, let's put it out to the listeners. Like, mm. send us an email or write it under the comments on the Facebook or page. Orwellpod at gmail.com. How can we update this word brotherhood for the 21st century? Because Humanhood. Or, humanhood, um, humanity, common humanity. Mm -hmm. you, you know, actually, we could take a really old-fashioned word from British history, which is commonwealth, uh, which was used in... I don't know, maybe it might put off some of our Irish it, listeners. It's a very linguistically loaded word, mm. though. I, I, we definitely can't use that, because that word was chosen on purpose in the breakup of the empire to signify something a bit more um, open and happy than was the reality. Personhood. Personhood. I think we can sum up Orwell's ideas in this paragraph. Men use up their lives in heartbreaking political struggles, or get themselves killed in civil wars, or tortured in the secret prisons of the Gestapo, not in order to establish some central heated, air-conditioned, strip-lighted paradise, but because they want a world in which human beings love one another instead of swindling and murdering one another. Now, uh, listeners, that is, if you want to know my political position, that is my political position. But this is the problem with socialism. He also mentions how those universals, those ideals, have in the history of humankind never been seen, never been experiences, never been experienced. No. Humanity has been at war and in conflict since its inception. Since the first monkey got down from the tree and stood up, we've been in conflict. And bashed the other monkey over the exactly. head and took its banana. So the history of humanity has a 100% track record of not being able to recognize those ideals and universals. Yet they are the goal of a whole system of political thought. What does that say about that system of political thought? as idealistic as it is. 
It's impossible. Well, it explains why a lot of socialists go for utopianism, because it's this idea of this uh, perfect state that we can work towards, but perhaps never get to. But do you not feel that capitalism, whether you're a proponent of capitalism or not, is a lot more realistic in its objectives? Well, this... Financial profit. It's there to be seen. It's been experienced. Well, this is one of the um, problems, I think, with uh, this essay, which is that the, the simple goal of, as Orwell puts it, human brotherhood and... Um, well, it, it's basically what, what one, one might call love, universal love. I found this very, very reminiscent of Christian rhetoric. At its most basic, Christian rhetoric is about loving thy neighbour, as I believe it says in the Bible. Um, so this is one problem I found with the essay, and I wanted to ask you your opinion on this. Does Orwell's argument rather suffer in that, in the end, he seems to equate socialism and utopianism because they are both systems uh, which fall down from their misinterpretation by human beings. Yeah. I don't know if misinterpretation is the word. Um, misplacement of realism or hope, perhaps. But I don't think there's anything wrong with aiming for such an ideal. No. Within, within a, a political movement or, or or sense of thought. We really have to consider the context of this essay. This essay was written at a time when many left-wing people, communists, socialists, etc., believed that once their goals were attained, then society would be perfect. Yeah. And there would be no problems anymore. And there would be no poverty, there would be no inequality, there would be no racism. But, and I'm sure you would find this if you actually read Marx, the whole idea isn't that socialism will be reached and there will be a perfect heaven on earth. The idea is that the striving for socialism, the idea is that socialism needs to be striven for and that is the only way that you can ensure a better life for, well, for everyone, regardless of race, class, etc. Well, the, the overarching theme being that once we achieve unadulterated equality and brotherhood, for want of a better word, we have reached utopia. Whereas capitalism says it's probably not going to be Equality, certainly not economic quality, yet you are in control of whether you can be economically situated in a good position or a bad position. It's up to you. Of course, socialism argues that it's weighted against most people, particularly the working classes who are exploited. Which is why the socialist's argument is create a society in which things are not weighted against people, and that is not the end, it is the beginning. If I might go back to uh, the As I Please essay that Orwell published in the same issue of the Tribune, 
It is all summed up in Marx's saying that after socialism has arrived, human history can begin. So that even Marx himself didn't believe that once socialism was arrived at, everything would be perfect and you wouldn't have to change a thing. It would be the point where people were freed from the shackles of economic inequality when people had enough to live on without fear of starving, without fear of inequality. It was at that point that the struggle for human happiness began, not ended, but began. We had a little chat the other day about um, individualism in its various forms. Do you think individualism can lead to happiness? I think ultimately... No, because I think so much of our happiness comes from our interactions with other people. I am living in a country in which, you know, I wasn't born and brought up in the culture. And so I could spend all my time in my flat watching Netflix, drinking my favourite booze and uh, eating my favourite food. But instead, I decide to come here with you and create something together. How aghast do you think Orwell would have been at that question? Do you think individualism? Because he speaks quite often about how communal activities are the key to happiness, doesn't he? In previous essays we've discussed, it could be going to, with your friends to watch a football match in a stadium full of 50,000 people or going to a music hall and sharing that experience with people. And yet, there's always this tension within Orwell because he was also uh, very much an individualist. He believed in the sanctity of your private thoughts, of your mind, and he loved reading, which is the ultimate individualist activity. Yeah. But I, in my research, I always ask myself if unionization is always the key to achieving equity and whether individual responsibility for your own good could be a better path to equity in that you drag those along with you or other people are also inspired to follow that path in their own way. Like appreciating your own worth and your own assets and using them to enhance your personal portfolio and exposing yourself to the modern world more in that way, both economically and socially, is better than unionising. What do you think about that? Well... And I'm talking very 2022 here, though, not 1922. Perhaps I'm old-fashioned, but I'm always a bit uh, suspicious when I hear these words like personal portfolio, because it seems to me like the the left uh, trying to steal the clothes of Thatcherism and uh, mm. uh, post, uh, you know, neoliberal thinking. Well, Try they did. Trying Bill, Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, it's well, exactly yes, what they and, did. And look what happened. It's uh, we're, we're back to square one. So you don't agree with, say, Clinton's um, welfare programme, where people were encouraged to help themselves? Well, I'm afraid I don't know enough about Clinton's welfare programme to, to comment, but I believe that 
the left has concentrated too much on cultural arguments in the last 10, 15 years and really needs to get back to economic arguments and to this idea, as Orwell puts it, that once you get economic parity, then then is the time to start worrying about everything else. So once people no longer have to worry about starving, once people no longer have to work two jobs, once the gig economy is no longer uh, ruining people's mental and physical health, then is the time uh, to sort out all the other uh, stuff that has been that the left has been actually looking at, all the cultural stuff uh, that's been making the headlines in the culture wars of the last 10-15 years. But politics on the right has evolved. You mentioned there neoliberalism, neoconservatism, but where has the left evolved in its politics and its in its adapt adoption of twenty first century technologies and realities? We live in a world now where you can be if you have an internet connection in a village in Africa, you can play an online game which is run by blockchain currencies, and you become you can become a millionaire from having one dollar at the beginning of it, sitting there on your own with an internet connection. But how many do? Yeah, but you can, that's the problem. That's the thing, you can do it. It's not inaccessible. Is this your idea then, that the internet will allow not socialism through combination, but socialism through access to information and to... It, it's an idea I'm exploring, how the left... And, and, and I think it's no surprise on this, on this podcast, you and I consider ourselves as that being our fraternity. The left needs to adapt to this idea of individualism and how modern technologies are in line with that. And how a modern form of unionization needs to be based more upon individualistic aspirations. I know I sound very Thatcherite with that, but I'd like to think it's moved on a bit beyond like pure neoliberalism. But then what is the relationship? Because what you're describing sounds to me like a very kind of slow form of anarchism, which one might argue is even further left than uh, socialism. No, not anarchism, because... Well, it's anarchism in a way, yes, because it's decentralised decentralized economies, decentralized systems of conduct and law. And isn't that pure socialism? Where we, the people, rather than institutions, can control economics, can control legal systems and patterns of behavior, as opposed to governments. But anyway, I think that's a theme that will come up in another essay quite soon. So as we conclude this one, What's your sum up in 30 seconds, your perceived path to happiness? In a filtered down version. Well, having time to live healthily, um, working at work that means something to me, that I enjoy, 
being relatively stress-free um, and getting access to nature, I would say those are vital. Well, that's a very happiness. Orwellian conclusion to your pursuit of happiness, and I do agree with you. With regards to mine, when I started my PhD some years back, I was told the core reason to do a PhD must be that you believe you are leaving your mark, no matter how tiny or minute it may be, on making society better than when you found it. Does that make sense? Mm. And I, 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 that rang with me. I thought, that's so true, and that's what I want to do in, in conducting a PhD, is doing research that I believe can benefit society in a positive way, you know, for everybody and not just the few. And I'd like to expand that to my existence in total and hope that when I breathe my last breath, I can think the world is 0.1 million recurring 0.1% better as a result of me having been here. You know, it is very strange, Simon. I don't want to go on too much about this, but... You have described yourself in the past as a bit of a nihilist, mm -hmm. but here are you saying that you want to feel you've not only left your mark, but left the world a better place. And here's me not, you know, I've never called myself a nihilist, but here's me saying it doesn't really matter to me whether I make my mark or not at all, because I, I feel that it's all... Uh, that it's all unnecessary anyway. It's, we're we're yeah. kind of roles reversed here. <laughs> but nihilists don't, do not discourage themselves from having a positive effect on society. They just don't believe it's a reality. And, yeah, I mean, what are the chances of me leaving an indemnable mark on society? It's very small. But, but the point is you're trying. But I'm it. trying. And what we discussed today with happiness, like we're, we're unlikely to achieve eternal happiness. Hence, socialists will never be happy. But by God, it's worth trying. And along that journey, you might just do some good. I think we'll leave it there. Did you feel happy? Did we? Yes, I do. Forget the beer. Um, but... Did we just conclude then socialists can never be happy? Because my conclusion was, yes, they can, but it's not about socialism. It's about your what you do personally in your life. I think nobody, no matter what your political ideology, will ever be eternally happy. No, because happiness... I mean, God, who is eternally yeah. happy? It's it would be exhausting for a start. Just, Live your life in a dichotomous relationship between misery and happiness and hope that happiness tilts the scales. Don't go too far in either direction yeah. either. Um, have a laugh, uh, make some friends and uh, have a drink now and then if your uh, personal belief system allows it. A merry bloody Christmas once a year. <laughs> um, all right then, so uh, I think Orwell it ends well. I would happily say so. <laughs>